So today we're going to take a look at Calvinism. What is it? What does the term mean? What do we think about it? If you have a Bible, we'll look at a number of verses, most of which I'm going to have on the screen this evening, but turn to John's Gospel because we're going to do a little bit of hippity-hop through the Gospel of John at one point, and that's where you'll want to put eyes on your own Bible or borrow one from your, from your friend Jim Yinkst. You probably gathered from Sunday. If you were here, you braved the, the elements to be here, or if you tuned in online, you probably gathered that I disagree with, with some of the fundamental tenets of Calvinism. And that's true, but when I say that, I disagree carefully. Um, I disagree carefully because we're supposed to. We're supposed to pursue unity in, in the body of Christ. And as I've said a number of times in this past year, um, I, I think that Calvinism is, is potentially dangerous. I, I, I look at it like I look at um, um, supersessionism, the idea that the church has replaced Israel. I look at the way that I look at cessationism, the idea that the gifts of the Spirit no longer operate the way that they did in the book of Acts. Um, I think that these are, are problematic doctrines, but my, my Calvinist brother, my supersessionist brother, my cessationist brother are my brothers uh, in the Lord and my sisters in the Lord. And these are things that we can disagree about under the blood of Christ. Um, one of my mentors uh, just put something out there to, to a, number one, a number of us. He just randomly emailed a bunch of us something that he encountered that I've actually been thinking uh, about a lot this week. He said, you know, when we talk about disagreement, there's levels of disagreement around doctrine and around philosophy of ministry. Um, there are things that we are, are hills to die on. You know, the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus, the, the deity of Jesus, um, the, God's word, the, these are hills to die on. A rung beneath that, there are things that of necessity we might divide over fellowship to fellowship. Um, someone who is, who is very, very Pentecostal, who is very extroverted in worship and, and, and you know, is used to punctuating a Bible study with their own thoughts and feelings and words of prophecy and, and prophetic utterances and, and so forth. Okay, that's, that's not really who we are as a fellowship. And so that would be something that we'd say, okay, you probably want to fellowship with people who are more like-minded with you along, the, along those lines. You know, it's, it's not a tail to die on, but for the sake of unity, probably better that... that and so there are also things that, that within a fellowship we can debate about. There are things that, that we can have healthy tension around, and, and iron can sharpen iron. And then there are things that we, we should look at, things that Christians disagree about that we can and should look at and just dismiss and say, that's dumb. You know, that's, we can have different opinions, but why would we waste time talking about that? There are much better things to talk about. 
And so when I talk about things that, that I disagree with, that I think that the Bible disagrees with, I do so carefully, knowing that there are people that love Jesus deeply, that respect the Bible tremendously, that come to different conclusions. And really, Calvary, Calvary was, was, was grounded in that sort of a philosophy. You remember that, that original statement of faith. That, that Pastor Chuck used to print on the bulletins and that most Calvaries still have somewhere on their websites. We're not a denomination. We're not opposed to denominations. We just hate the unnecessary and grievous division that they sometimes bring to the body of Christ. The, the real thing that, that, that makes us Christians, that labels us Christians, that differentiates us as Christians is Christ's agape love. And oh, that that could be more true in the body of Christ. 20, coming up on 25 years of ministry, the most vicious attacks that I've endured haven't come from cults or Muslims or atheists or liberals. The most vicious attacks that I've been on the receiving end of have been from Christians. Convinced that, that what we believe and teach, the way that we understand the Bible, is not only wrong, but heretical and dangerous and has to be stopped. And, and one of the things that, that gets people's dander up is this, this debate over Calvinism and, and, and the reciprocal term Arminianism. If, if you're not familiar with those terms, they're, they're often equated to what we believe about how people are saved. Does God choose me? Do I choose God? Turns out it's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's what it's associated with in most people's minds. And if you list topics that divide the body of Christ, this is going to be top five on anybody's list, top three on most people's lists. And like I said, the tragic thing is that it doesn't need to. If you were here Sunday, I, I pointed out that, that I think that, that the whole debate tries to make an either-or out of something that's rightly understood as a both-and. Nonetheless, if, if you haven't encountered this, you will. If you aren't sure why you should even care about this, because this is a debate that divides the body of Christ. And if you haven't already, you're going to encounter people that want to call who we are and what we're about at Calvary a false church. And you're going to encounter people who are going to get offended that I'll sometimes quote a Calvinist like John Piper or John MacArthur and, and accuse me of being heretical and, and throwing in with people who pervert the word of God. Let's, let's see if we can be wiser than that tonight. The answer isn't to, divide, to, to avoid the question, by the way. There are denominations that take that stance. Well, if we disagree on soteriology, the theology of salvation, if we disagree on eschatology, the theology of end times, if we disagree on this or on that, well, then let's just not talk about it. You know, the, the same sort of detente that a lot of you observed at Thanksgiving dinner. You, 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 you know that you, know, you don't want to get your uncle going, so just don't even talk about politics. Let's just talk about things that we can agree on. I, I don't think that honors God either, though, because isn't it God who tells us, let's reason together? I think God calls us to chew on the meat of his word and pursue understanding and arrive at truth 
And, and so I don't want to shy away from that. I want, at, at Calvary, I want us to be as smart as we can and the best students uh, that we can be and, and as submitted to the Holy Spirit as possible, pursuing understanding, while at the same time doing that with humility. And at the same time realizing that the thing that Jesus teaches more clearly than anything else is to love our brothers and sisters and to disagree without being disagreeable. When we disagree, it should drive us deeper into the word, right? It shouldn't cause us to shout louder, but it should drive us deeper in the word so that we can respond more thoughtfully and more prayerfully. So that that when we encounter someone who's, wow, here's a really smart, godly person who reads this this passage completely different than me. Okay, what, what do I think and why do I think it? And what is God saying? If we do that right, we'll be building each other up, not tearing each other down. And we'll be growing in, in, in the knowledge and the understanding and, and the love of Jesus Christ. And that's always our goal, right? So anyway, with all of that as introduction, it's with that heart that I approach the topic this evening. Calvinism. Where does the term come from? Early 17th century, <clears throat> pastor and scholar Jacob Herman, who, who was popularly known as Arminius, gave a series of lectures at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands questioning the teaching of some of the reformers, chiefly questioning the teaching of John Calvin. Reformers, guys like Calvin, guys like Knox, guys like Luther, who, starting in the late 1500s, tried to reform Catholicism, and when they failed to do that, broke away from Catholicism, and that's how we got the Protestant church. One of the hallmarks of the Reformation, as the movement came to be called, was, was the goal of bringing the Bible back to the people, letting the people read the Bible for themselves, letting, letting people under, read and understand what does it actually say, then, rather than blindly accepting the words of popes and priests. Then, as now, that was a really messy process, because not everybody agreed okay, we need to start reading the Bible for ourselves. We need to not take other people's word for it, but what does the Bible say about communion and baptism and the Trinity and original sin? Well, John Calvin had opinions on all of those subjects, but what he's best remembered for is his position on salvation. And when I say his position, he didn't think up all of the ideas commonly attributed to him. Most of what today we refer to as Calvinism is a belief system that can be traced back to Augustine, one of the early church fathers. He lived in the fourth century. And he's, he's the hero of, of reform theologians, those who, who ascribe to Calvinism. Point being, Calvin doesn't invent Calvinism or reform theology. Those are terms that came later. He didn't even give us the formulation of of reform theology that that bears his name. That came 60, 70 years after he died. But here's, here's what happened. In the early 1600s, Arminius says, I'm not sure that Calvin and his fellow travelers have it right. I don't think that they've got this all figured out. I don't think that everything that they're saying is really what the Bible says. And so in 1610, some of Arminius' students put together a document called Five Points of Arminianism. Contrary to popular belief, Arminianism was not a response to Calvinism. It, It sort of came first. Well, 1618, the Dutch Reformed Church holds a meeting, the Synod of Dord, in the town of Dordrecht. And they come out with a response that they call the five points of 
well, it came to be known as the Five Points of Calvinism. They didn't call it that. And, and they didn't use the acronym that's become associated with Calvinism, which is TULIP. If you look at the first letter of those, that's... Calvin didn't come up with it. Um, no one articulated it this way until after he died, but because it's commonly referred to this way, we'll, we'll use that, that language tonight. And I want to look at these five points of Calvinism, the five points of TULIP, because sooner or later someone is going to challenge you on this. They're either going to try to convince you that this is the way, the truth, and the life, or that you're a heretic for not agreeing with them. Because people who care about this care deeply about this. And they're going to insist. They're going to demand that you do as well. Or they're going to want to break fellowship with you over it in many cases. So it's useful to be at least have a passing familiarity with what it is that we're talking about when we talk about Calvinism. Disclaimer, not all Calvinists agree on what Calvinism is any more than all Protestants agree on, or all Baptists agree. So for the, our purposes tonight, I'm going to use really broad definitions, common denominator kinds of definitions of each of these five points that those who hold to Calvinism would, would espouse and believe. The first, total depravity. Most, if not all, Calvinists would believe that we are born in absolute bondage to sin and Satan and completely unable to trust in Jesus without the help of God. And you're saying, well, what's wrong with that? I think I believe that. Isn't that biblical? It is, to a point. Romans 3.23, all are sinners. Romans 3.10-12, unredeemed man is, is, is not righteous, is not good. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, apart from God's grace, we can't be saved. And the Bible says that if, if God didn't convict us and draw us to himself, no one would be saved. So what's the problem? Well, so far, no problem. If, if that's how we define total depravity. And, and most of us would nod and say, yeah, I, I agree with that. The, the problem is that's not how a Calvinist would use that term. We have to let those who hold the belief define the belief. And most Calvinists go beyond the black letter of Scripture to say, well, the unbeliever is not only spiritually dead, but totally unable to respond to God in any way until God regenerates them. What does that mean? It means that before I can be saved, I have to be saved. Before I can be saved, my soul has to be regenerated by God first. If you've made your way to John's Gospel, look down at John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's one of the passages the Calvinists would point to and say, you see... God has to completely remake a human heart before he can save the human heart. John Gerstner, who's a Calvinist scholar, looking at this passage, <clears throat> says, <clears throat> we must not get the notion that people come to Jesus and as a result are born again. Those who come to Jesus are not born again, but on the contrary, indicate that they have been born again. 
In other words, they're not born again because they've come to Jesus, but they come to Jesus because they've been born again. Which is not what we're used to hearing, and the reason for that is that's not what the verse actually says. John 1 verse 12 tells us that this new birth is obtained by all who receive him, who receive Jesus, which tells us receiving Jesus is a choice, it's a decision, it's an act of will. John's point is that there's no new birth apart from God, and that's true. He's saying only God can save us, and that's right. God is the source of that new birth. Our faith in that source is the means. The Calvinists have, have a problem. They start with a truth, which is that we cannot save ourselves. That's true. They start with acknowledging that we cannot be saved apart from God. That's true. We're only, but, but then they take it a step further and, and they say, we're only saved through the agency of God and our free will plays no part. God regenerates us and then salvation inevitably follows. Well, wait, wait, wait. The Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible doesn't say I have to be saved to be saved. Regeneration is a thing, but it's part of salvation. It's not something that happens before. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace. Faith is the means by which we access God's grace. Not regeneration alone. One of, one of lots of verses, Romans 5.1, that we could turn to, all saying the same thing, all laying out the same pattern. Faith. Is, is a necessary precedent to salvation. Faith comes before salvation. God draws us. Yeah, absolutely. Without God drawing us, none of us would be saved. But what does God draw us to? He draws us to a choice. He draws us to a decision to repent and believe and be saved or not. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, well, God's already done it. Just wait. Any minute now. It's going to happen. No, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going to touch on each of these five points, the flaw in the Calvinist argument is not that they're making things up out of thin air. That's Calvinist, or Catholicism. <laughs> no, what they're doing is they're taking a biblical idea, in this case, the depravity of man, which is a real thing, I've fallen, I can't save myself, and extending it to beyond what the Bible says, extending it to say that man is so corrupt, he can't even participate in salvation. So God says, saves us in spite of ourselves. The Bible doesn't say that. Total depravity, here's the bottom line, doesn't mean what most people encountering that phrase for the first time think that it means. Which brings us to the next point in Tulip. I know we're going quickly, but overview tonight. Grab me later if you want to get deeper and wider. But the you in Tulip, unconditional election. And, and really what should be added there at the end of that is unconditional election of some. Again, we'll take the, the broadest possible definition, the common denominator definition that most people espousing Calvinism would agree to. And they would say that salvation is based on God's plan and purpose alone. Nowhere does the decision of man factor in, but the sovereignty of God and only the sovereignty of God. 
God and God only chooses some who will be saved and some who won't be. Again, substantial truth in that statement. We talked about this on Sunday. God unquestionably chose <coughs> those who believe before the foundation of the world. That was Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. And we, we lateral to Romans 8, verse 29. God predestined the believer to be conformed to the image of his Son. But what does predestination mean? According to John Calvin, it's God unilaterally exercising his own will. Calvin's words, by predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God, by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. Patrick talking. Some are created with no chance of salvation ever. Each one of us has been created for one or other of those ends. Some have been predestined to life, others to death. In other words, Calvin says, some lives matter. <laughs> Except this, does, this position doesn't stand up to Scripture, and we talked about this on Sunday. If some people are created with no hope of salvation, why does Paul tell Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.4, that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Why does Peter say in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any shall perish, but that all should come to repentance? <coughs> the Calvinist response is, well, it says in Romans 9, whom he foreknew he predestined, and that's true. Well, that means that some will and some won't. Except that we've got other verses that tell us that any could. To which a Calvinist will argue, well, you're talking about works. You're, you're, you're talking about salvation based on a choice that somebody is making. And that's, that's a work. And that's unbiblical. We're not saved by our works. Okay. We're not saved by our works, that's true. That would be unbiblical. But faith isn't a work. Faith is what allows us to accept the work that Jesus did on the cross. Yeah, I'm not saved on the basis of my works, past, present, or future. And, 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 and the Calvinist trying to tell me that that's what I'm arguing, that's a straw man. That's a straw man fallacy, telling me what I think so that they can refute it. I don't think I'm saved by works. What I think, and what the Bible teaches, more importantly... Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, this is I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm saved by God's grace, expresses Jesus' death on the cross, which I accept by faith. That's where the Calvinist says, yeah, you are, but not everybody. Faith is a gift from God only to the elect. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift only to, to those he has chosen. He doesn't give everybody that gift. It's not what the Bible says either. So we have to be careful about proof texting. We have to be careful about taking one verse and weaponizing it and, and, and using it to destroy all of the other verses. We've got to look at what the entirety of Scripture says. And if we look, let's just take a walk through John. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever, what? Believes. John 3, 18. 
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. John 6, 29. Turn a few more pages. John 6, 29, Jesus said, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. John eleven forty. John eleven forty. Jesus said, Did I not say that to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? John twelve thirty six. John twelve thirty six. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The point is, nowhere does the Bible teach that faith is a special gift given only to a select few. The weight of, of, of the Bible's teaching is that anyone who wants to be saved can be saved by grace, accessed through faith. Every, every passage that speaks to unbelievers about salvation says so, or at least implies so. Which brings us to a limited atonement. And again, ignoring degrees and nuance and, and so forth, this doctrine essentially says that Jesus died for the elect and only for the elect. Those who Jesus died for, the elect will be saved. Those he did not die for, the non-elect will not be saved. What, what you're probably picking up is that each of these points is interrelated. You'll sometimes hear somebody say, well, I'm, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I may be a four-point Calvinist or a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist. It doesn't actually work that way. They all tie together. You have to take them as a package or reject them as a package. And limited atonement follows directly from unconditional election. If God didn't intend for everyone to, for it to be possible for everyone to be saved, then it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to die for everyone. But if Jesus died for everyone, well, then everyone has an opportunity to be saved. See, the five points can't be separated. They're all part of the same core belief People will be saved or damned for eternity because they were saved or damned from eternity. It was settled before Jesus laid the foundation of the world. Back to limited atonement. The idea that Jesus died only for the elect. Yes, we find a suggestion in Scripture. 1 Peter 1-2 talks about some being elect according to the foreknowledge of God our Father. So yeah, predestination is clearly a thing, like we said on Sunday. But how do we get there from, to, from there to believing that the death of Jesus wasn't potentially sufficient for all? If Jesus only died for some, why does Paul tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. doesn't say for the elect, it says for all. If Christ's death wasn't potentially, didn't potentially satisfy the debt of everyone, why would the author of Hebrews say in Hebrews 2.9 that Christ suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone? Not everybody takes advantage of the price that Jesus paid, but he paid a price sufficient for anyone. Now, the Calvinists would argue, well, elect is implied. It doesn't say that. 
but clearly that's what it means. <laughs> the problem is, is that that runs up against a basic rule of hermeneutics. Bible Interpretation 101 says that we have to interpret the difficult texts in light of the clear texts, the easy-to-understand texts, not the other way around. It's, it's, also, you know, it's also a logical fallacy. 1 Corinthians 15.3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sin according to the Scripture. Our sin. Who's Paul talking to? He's potentially talking to anyone. The Calvinists would argue, no, 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 Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to the church. So our sin is only the sins of the redeemed who are the only ones that Jesus died for. Why does that have to be true? If I say that I'm Rob's friend, does that mean that I can't be Ben's friend? The fact that Jesus loved his church and died for her, is that, not, that doesn't preclude the possibility that Jesus loved the world and died for the sins of the world. And if Jesus didn't love, love the world and die for the sins of the world, then God isn't who he says he is. Then God isn't who he claims to be in Scripture. Which is where Dave Hunt got the title of his book about Calvinism, What Love Is This? Because if you haven't picked it up by now, I'll say, the God of Calvinism is not all loving. Which is a denial of God. That sounds harsh. That sounds like what I didn't want to be. But it's true. Justice and love are both attributes of God. God's nature is what it is. God loves sinners because God is love. Does he, does he have to judge those who don't take advantage of the cross of Jesus Christ? He does. But God loves sinners or none of us would be here. And to say that there are some that God doesn't love wars with what God tells us about himself, that he's a God of love. And one manifestation of that is grace. Grace for all who are willing to repent and believe. Now one manifestation of our fallenness is our willingness to reject that grace. The Calvinist says no. Here's the next point. The Calvinist says, no, you don't understand. Grace is irresistible. And, and, and it sounds like I'm being really obnoxious, and I don't intend to. I don't intend to be unkind to those with whom I disagree. I'm just disagreeing with those with whom I disagree. What I'm going through it for is, is clarity. Because here's the thing. On each of these points, my Calvinist brothers, and they are my brothers, are starting with biblical truth. And they're going further than the Bible goes to say things that the Bible doesn't say. Irresistible grace is another example. What is grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? High on that list, salvation. And the Bible has a lot to say on that subject. It says that, yes, grace is not a result of our human effort or worthiness, Romans 3.24. That's the unmerited love that God visits on those who believe on his Son. That's why so many Calvinist-leaning churches have the word grace in their name, because they really want to hammer, they really want to emphasize the role of grace God's sovereign grace in salvation. And that's, it's, that's, it's important. It's critical. It's necessary. Without grace, we can't be saved. Without grace, we can't be saved. Without our choice to avail ourselves of that grace, we won't be saved. 
It's part of what the Calvinist denies. The Calvinist says, well, if you're saved, there's nothing you can do about it. God's going to draw you whether you want to or not. Except how many counterexamples do we see? In, in, in Scripture on Sunday, we went to Matthew 13. Jesus saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you refuse to believe. We could have gone to Matthew 23. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, saying, oh, he, he, you, you, you could have had your king, you could have had your Messiah, you could have had salvation, but what? You weren't willing. No, if a person rejects God's grace, it's not because they had no opportunity to be saved, it's because they made a ch choice to not be saved. They made a choice to not accept God's grace. All of those verses that we looked at in John, believe, 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 every one of them a choice. The Calvinist says differently. The Calvinist says, no, God's going to save those he's going to save. Remember, remember the Calvinist view, I can't be saved until I'm saved. I can't be saved until I'm regenerated. But if the Holy Spirit is moving to regenerate me, well, then the, the train has left the station. Then the wheels are in motion. Then I'm going to be saved and I'm powerless to resist. So in a Calvinist world, no amount of preaching or teaching or evangelism can help the unelect. And giving an altar call at the end of a service, as, as we do here sometimes, is cruel. Because that just gives some people false hope. The elect are going to be saved, whether they want to or not. The unelect won't be, period. Except it's not biblical. Acts 7.51, Stephen says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The Calvinists would say it's impossible to resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen seemed to disagree. The author of Hebrews disagrees. If it's impossible to resist the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Hebrews talking to when he says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart? Wouldn't make sense unless it's possible to harden your heart. Norm Geisler says it well. He says, God's grace is ir irresistible if we're willing to receive it. God is unconditionally willing that none shall perish if we repent. God's sovereign will, the undeniable truth about God's sovereign will is that he gives us the sovereignty to resist his will. Last point, perseverance of the saints. Last point is simultaneously the most straightforward and the most confusing. Perseverance of the saints. Sounds like eternal security. I think I can mostly get behind that, Patrick. Be careful. Pretty much all Calvinists would agree all of the elect will be saved and will stay saved. All of those who are elect will be saved and all of those who are saved will make it to heaven. How do I know if I'm saved? Can I know that I'm saved? This is where Calvinists will disagree, and extreme Calvinists will say no. Blessed assurance isn't. <laughs> There's no such thing. You can't really know if you're really saved until you persevere to the end. Up to that point, you might just be faking it. You might just, you might just be acting like. No, the way that you prove that you're saved is by the Holy Spirit working in you and manifesting himself in you all the way to the finish line. Well, that sounds like works. No, 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 that's just evidence. Why do I need evidence? 
See, the, the whole idea wars with Scripture. It wars with, with the blessed assurance that God promises the believer. It wars with, with John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The Bible teaches assurance. For whom? For those who hear the shepherd's voice and recognize that my sheep know my voice. We can know that we know that we know, in other words. Now, I know I'm a more moderate Calvinist. We'll say, yeah, okay. But you have to agree, Patrick, that that same verse says, once saved, always saved. And, and so do other verses. Philippians 1, 6, he who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, which is true. But what do you do with verses like Hebrews 3.12? Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the loving God. Or 1 Timothy 4.1, in latter times some shall depart from the faith. Wouldn't those verses seem to suggest that just as God respects the sovereignty of the individual who doesn't want to come to Christ, he also respects the sovereignty of the individual who wishes to depart from Christ. Now be careful. I'm not suggesting that we can sin our way out of God's hand. I think Scripture's clear on that. I don't think that we can sin away our salvation. But is it possible that God so esteems our sovereignty that we can reject it? Calvinists duck the whole argument, and they say, well, the person that you're talking about in Hebrews or in 1 Timothy wasn't saved in the first place. And the reason that they stopped walking with God is they were never walking with God. They were just acting like they were walking with God. That doesn't plug all the holes. The Bible teaches apostasy. The Bible teaches some departing from the faith. Warns against it, tells us how to recognize it, how to respond to it. If it wasn't possible to depart from the faith, why would there be verses in Scripture dedicated to it? And what's funny is that even R.C. Sproul, Calvinist and all Calvinists, R.C. Sproul points out the dilemma. He says, if no one among the elect falls away or is capable of falling away, why bother to warn people against us? It seems frivolous to warn people to avoid the impossible. Now, from there, Sproul launches into a really technical discussion about what's perseverance and what's assurance and what's salvation and sanctification, and do we pursue holiness to stay saved or because we are saved? And, and, and it's, it's tough and it's chewy. But it's the kind of conversation that godly people shouldn't run away from. It's a conversation that makes us open up our Bibles and, and compare Scripture with Scripture. Receive the Word with all readiness of mind, but search the Scripture and see whether these things be so, Acts 17 11. Respectfully, thoughtfully, not just shouting at each other, is not, is to, are not, are to. <coughs> Calvinism came out of a movement of God to which we are all indebted, the Reformation. If not for the Reformation, if not for the, the, the heart and the desire and the willingness to die, to put the Bible back in the hands of the people so that we could read and understand it for ourselves, we wouldn't be here. And we dishonor that legacy. We, 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 and we dishonor the Bible and we dishonor the God of the Bible if we don't Keep doing the same thing, opening it and reading it and studying it 
and seeking to understand it. Each of Tulip's five points, each of those doctrines is grounded in some scripture. <clears throat> but we need to be smarter than say, well, I don't agree with that, I agree with the opposite of that. No, I mean, then we're guilty of the same error. We're not rightly dividing the word of God. The whole world, word of God, not just the texts that support our, our pet doctrines and our presuppositions. This is challenging stuff. And the more, the more we dig into it, the more challenging it gets. It's like compressing a spring. You know, the further you push down, the greater the resistance. That's, that's true for, for, for soteriology, the theology of salvation. The greater we push, the greater the pushback. And the greater the temptation to just res resort to oversimplification because it relieves the tension. F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, the test of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. The Bible teaches predestination. The Bible teaches free will. Our brains resist that. And we get to these points in Scripture where we want to bail out. We get to those points in life where we want to bail out. I remember reading a, a commencement speaker at one of the big universities a few years ago. He said, an educated person must have the ability to appreciate, learn from, and embrace contradiction, even when we might prefer closure. To perceive and tolerate ambiguity is a necessary precondition for advanced reasoning, whether about text, visual objects, laboratory findings, observations, about the world around us or public policy or God. The appeal of Calvinism is that it takes something really complicated and chewy and, and, and thick and meaty and it makes it simple. And Arminianism does the same thing in the other direction. And, and we can be tempted to throw up our hands and say, well, I'm not smart enough, I'm not learned enough, and, and I don't... Uh, at, at, but at the end of the day, it's not about intelligence. And it's not about education. It's about a willingness to embrace a reality that every other endeavor of, 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 of humanity has to confront. Truth can be complicated. It shouldn't boggle our minds. If God's ways are above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts, if his ways, Romans 11.33, are way past finding out, doesn't it make sense that, that, that some truth would, would, would be hard to lay hold of? But rather than running from that reality and, and, and finding refuge in oversimplification, shouldn't we as students of God's word run toward that and embrace it? And, and welcome those whose starting point is different and whose understanding isn't the same. How do we claim to love a God who is as great as he is and who is as good as he is and who loves as much as he does if we take refuge in oversimplification? Let's run towards him and embrace as, as much of him as our minds will allow. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that you are great and that you are good and that you are deep. And Lord, open our hearts to those who, who wrestle differently with these topics. And that we would extend the right hand of fellowship. 
And if some reject, reject that love, let it be on them. Jesus, you taught us that the true distinctive of Christianity, the hallmark of your people, would be our love for one another. Let that be true. In our hearts, in our words, in our lives, in our fellowship, in how we speak of your word, how we speak of your church. In your holy name, amen.